When we look back at the full sweep of Jewish history, we inevitably ask how the Jews managed to survive this long. How did a small and vulnerable group outlast the most powerful empires? The Assyrians and Babylonians and Persians, the Greeks and Romans and Byzantines, the Islamic empires, Tsarist Russia, the Nazis. And one of the answers, maybe it's the answer, is that Jews responded to crises with creativity. The bigger the crisis, the more creative was the response. For truly existential crises, those that threatened to end the Jews as a people, Jews undertook a wholesale reevaluation of their religion and culture, adapting and adopting new ways of thinking and practicing to preserve their ethnic, religious, and national identities. Back in 586 BCE, the people of Israel were facing their biggest existential crisis yet. The Babylonians destroyed much of Jerusalem, raised the temple, exiled thousands of people to Babylon, and caused many more to scatter to other parts of the Near East. Those left in Judah were in a state of destitution. The kingdom of Judah was now a vassal province of Babylon and was called Yehud. For the first time, most Israelites found themselves living in a state of diaspora, separated from their ancient homeland. The biblical scholar Thomas Romer writes that this situation provoked an ideological crisis, especially for the exiles in Babylon, who represented the political, cultural, and intellectual elite of Israelite society. Romer writes that the four pillars of identity were destroyed, the king, the temple, the national god, and the land itself. So it was necessary, he writes, to find new foundations for the identity of a population deprived of its traditional institutions. To stave off the catastrophic end of themselves as a distinct people, the Israelites were forced to find creative workarounds both to understand their predicament and to redefine their future. Everything had to be updated. Who they understood their leaders to be, how they planned to continue practicing their religion without the temple, their understanding of their relationship with God, and their relationship to the land. The period of the Babylonian exile only lasted about 50 years, but it fundamentally changed Israelite culture so significantly that what emerged was essentially a new religion, Judaism. That's today's episode. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. So we have king, god, temple, and land. Those are the four pillars of ancient Near Eastern peoples. Back then, when you lost those four things, you were done. The Sumerians, Assyrians, Babylonians, and countless others went this way. And for some of the Israelite exiles in Babylon, that is what happened. Awed and seduced by Babylon's sheer size and cosmopolitanism, they quickly absorbed the surrounding culture and took up the Babylonian gods. Other Israelites went for a hybrid approach, maintaining some connection to Yahweh, but also worshipping like the locals. After all, life in Babylon wasn't too bad. There was little persecution, they were integrated into society and generally free to do as they wished. They could own land, start businesses, live together in their own communities. Some even became quite wealthy. It just wasn't a bad life for most Israelites. But many of the exiles were still shocked by what had befallen them, and for them, their world was in shatters. There was a desperate need to bring order to the theological chaos that confronted the shattering of the king-god-temple-land dynamic how can we stay loyal to the God who has abandoned us? 
In the ancient world, gods were tied to specific places, like temples and cities and territory. Having been removed from Jerusalem then, the exiles had been removed from the divine presence. God was no longer accessible. They were alone, abandoned, and with the temple in ruins, it was quite possible indeed that God too was now gone from the world, bested by the more powerful Babylonian god. But the prophet Ezekiel had an answer for this god problem. He had been amongst the first group of deportees in 597 BCE. For five years he had shuttered himself in his home in Babylon in a neighborhood called Tel Aviv. He spoke to no one, and when he finally did, it was to proclaim the coming destruction of Jerusalem thanks to the sins of the people, which is exactly what happened in the year 586. But then Ezekiel had an incredible, mystical, terrifying, fantastical vision in which the glory of Yahweh appeared to him in the midst of a cacophonous riot of storm and fire. But how could God appear to him when God had been destroyed? It was a revelation that changed everything, for it meant two things. One, that God had not abandoned the people. And two, that God was right here in Babylon with them, not still back in Jerusalem. Now, this was an extraordinary innovation, an immensely creative response that got the Israelites partly out of their theological dilemma. Their God was not stuck in his temple in his homeland like the other Near Eastern gods. Their God was actually mobile. The historian Karen Armstrong writes that it was a return to an older theology in which God had accompanied the people through the wilderness from Mount Sinai to the land of Canaan. Now again, he had come with the people out of Jerusalem and into Babylon. That's why Ezekiel was so convinced of Jerusalem's coming destruction. God had left the city. God was where the people were. So it wasn't the case then that the Babylonian God had overpowered the Israelite one. It was actually the reverse. The Israelites had to be punished for their sins of idolatry. God had simply used the Babylonians as the instrument of that punishment. And that would provide an equal, powerful counterpoint. God could also use these historical forces to undo that punishment, to provide instead salvation. We'll come back to that. So this was a huge step forward. Ezekiel's idea of a mobile national God who was not tied to any one place, but instead to his people wherever they were, even as they were scattered around the Near East after 586. It seems obvious to us now, but back then this was a radical notion. But even if God was with them, there was still the problem of the temple. Israelite religion prohibited worship outside the land of Israel, and the temple in Jerusalem was considered more or less the only legitimate site to offer the sacrifices necessary for ritual obligations, the essential way that the Israelites demonstrated their loyalty to God. Luckily, someone else had an answer for that problem, too. Also in Babylon at this time was another exile, the priest, who was trying to bring order to the chaos by solving the problem of not having the temple anymore. We don't know who he was, but we call him the priestly source, and he was responsible for writing chunks of what became the first four books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. He was deeply concerned with laws and rituals, and he wanted to show the Israelites how these things could be used to continue worshiping God. 
The biblical scholar Mark V. Brettler writes that this priestly writer intended to show that God is a highly organized, powerful creator, and the world is completely responsive to his commands. So the priestly writer either took up some older material or wrote his own story about creation, in which God brought order to the cosmos, systematically separating things out from one another over a period of six days. Light and darkness, day and night, land and water. If this sounds like the first chapter of the book of Genesis to you, well, that's because it is. This wasn't like other Near Eastern creation stories, with gods giving birth to mortal heroes who slay monsters and move mountains. This was a story about how God brings order to chaos through the process of separation. Karen Armstrong writes that boundaries are set up and each component of the cosmos is given its special place. She says that it was a new type of ritual, which did not require a temple or an elaborate liturgy, but could be performed by men and women in the apparently humdrum ordering of their daily lives. These were the commandments, the mitzvot, the set of laws, rules, and rituals that the priestly writer had Moses receiving from God at Mount Sinai. It was the elaborate system to maintain the covenant with God without actually having to be physically in the land of Israel. These commandments ensure that we still have access to God without the temple, can still do our part to maintain the covenant, and therefore demonstrate our loyalty to God, all of which are central to our Israelite religion, and therefore our identity. This was the creative workaround for the loss of the temple, and the exiles took to it with excitement. The historian Paul Johnson writes that it was during the exile in which ordinary Jews were first disciplined into the regular practice of their religion. It was in exile that the rules of faith began to seem all-important, rules of purity, of cleanliness, of diet. Separating our food, what became the basis for kosher dietary laws, became one act of ordering, a way to imitate God's acts of ordering creation. They were a way to keep the covenantal obligations while also distinguishing ourselves from the surrounding Babylonians. And here's another one. Circumcision may have taken off during this time period. The Israelites didn't invent the practice. It had been in use around the Near East for at least a couple thousand years. We don't know when the Israelites took up the practice originally. It may have been centuries before the exile. But the exile turned circumcision into a major life cycle event whose obligation became a sacred event. And here's another one. Shabbat. We also don't quite know when Shabbat began to be observed, but it too received a boost during the exile as a regular ritualistic practice that didn't require the temple. One of the gifts that the Babylonians bestowed on the exiles was astronomical knowledge, which made it easier to maintain a weekly, monthly, and yearly calendar system. That made it possible to precisely organize a weekly Shabbat holiday, as well as an annual cycle of feasts commemorating important Israelite moments. Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, Passover, Sukkot, Shavuot, and others. Though some of these, like Passover, had their origins before the exile, they all, like the other rituals, took on a deeper and more urgent meaning during the time in Babylon. And by the way, not only did the Israelites adopt Babylonian time management skills, they also took from them the names of the months of the year. As they say, good religions borrow, great ones steal outright. The next time you find yourself using Hebrew dates, like the months of Tishrei and Kislev and Adar and all the rest, spare a thought to the Babylonians who gave us those names. Pretty cool stuff. The point of all this is that observing religious law is now the means for maintaining the Israelites' ethnic identity in exile. 
the rituals, the holidays, Shabbat, the mitzvot, commandments. These are the ways for us to uphold the covenantal relationship with God. And so under the priestly writer, or it may have been several writers, it was the law that took on the greatest authority. Previously, the temple in Jerusalem had held the holy place, but now the law does. That's how I access the divine. Every time I perform a mitzvah, a commandment, every time I perform a ritual obligation, every time I observe a holiday, I access the divine as if I had physical access to the temple. This was a wild innovation too, and the priestly writer had a justification for it. Thomas Romer writes that for the priestly author or authors, all the rituals that will come to define Judaism were given by Moses in the desert, even before there was an established form of political organization. In other words, the Israelites wrote that the laws came first, at Mount Sinai, before we got to the Promised Land, before there was a monarchy, before any of our national history. But even without needing the temple, you still need a way to communicate with God. Now that was done through ritual sacrifice, the elaborate ceremony of slaughtering an animal at the altar in the temple, which was yet another thing the Israelites could no longer do. But there was an answer for that too. Prayer. It seems so obvious to us today because that's how we communicate with God, but back then it was a very strange idea. Prayer in praise of God, performed while facing where the temple had stood in Jerusalem, that became the accepted substitute for the animal sacrifice that was previously our only method of communication. One of the great mysteries of Jewish history is just when the synagogue began. The term synagogue itself comes from the Greek, so that's still a few centuries away. There was long thought to be a simple and causal connection here. In the absence of the central temple in Jerusalem, the exiles in Babylon created stand-in locations to replicate the necessary practices. The Hebrew Bible doesn't seem to directly address the presence of synagogues in Judah before the Babylonian exile, so the assumption is often that they were invented in Babylon and then imported back into Judah later. It's certainly possible, but we just don't know. Some scholars argue that synagogues predate the exile, but in effect got popular during the exile for all the practical reasons. Indeed, walk into any synagogue anywhere in the world today, and you'll find symbolic representations in both architecture and artifacts of Solomon's temple. So we've solved for the lack of God's presence, and we solve for the lack of access to the temple in Jerusalem. What about the monarchy? Who will lead us if not the king? Well, according to the priestly writer, it turns out we don't need the king anymore. Remember, we have the laws now and the laws were given at Mount Sinai before there was a monarchy. So it's not the king we look to for guidance. The important people now are those who write the laws and know what they are, the scribes. Paul Johnson writes that in exile, the scribes became an important caste, setting down and writing oral traditions, copying precious scrolls brought from the ruined temple, ordering, editing, and rationalizing the Jewish archives. This was an essential task because suddenly the particular rules of their religion took on an outsider's importance. It's in some ways classic diaspora thinking. If I'm no longer in my ancestral homeland, then I need to ensure I'm performing all the rules and rituals correctly, more than I would back home. 
remember what Paul Johnson wrote, that it was in exile that the rules of faith began to seem all-important. The laws were now studied, read aloud, and memorized. The process of compiling what became the Hebrew Bible went into overdrive, as the scribes raced to rewrite and redraft the ancient stories, laws, and rituals to accommodate this new situation in exile. These writings started to become authoritative and more central to daily life. Paul Johnson calls this a nomocracy. The voluntary submission to rule by a law which can only be enforced by consent. This was the first time such a thing had happened in history. King, God, Temple, and Land Israelite religion, like all ancient religions, was indelibly tied to their ancestral homeland. It's where their temples were, their people, their God. It was the land divinely bestowed on them from their earliest historical memories, and until now, in 586 BCE, they had never lived outside of it. If we're no longer in our homeland, they asked, how can we still maintain our national ties to the land? The answer they came up with was to emphasize a deep emotional connection to the land of Israel. You don't need to be there because you can instead embrace the values that symbolize being there. Instead of their physical possession of the land, they would possess it in their hearts. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue stick to my palate if I cease to think of you. If I do not keep Jerusalem in memory even at my happiest hour. So says Psalm 137. By the Middle Ages, this concept had morphed into the prayer that closes major Jewish holidays today. Bashana Haba'ah Yerushalayim. Next year, in Jerusalem. The land of Israel became, then, the place of our future salvation. When God redeems us from our captivity in Babylon, we will return to Israel. Quite similar, indeed, to the story of the Exodus. The exiles turned the land of Israel into a place of longing, They took this central pillar and made it, like God, mobile. If you found yourself in exile, in a state of being outside the land of Israel, you could nevertheless have with you this deep emotional attachment that looked forward to a future in which you would be returned. And because this state of exile persisted for the Jewish people beginning in 586, right through our own present moment, this longing for the return from exile, this deeply felt upholding of the primacy of the land of Israel, became a permanent and ingrained fixture of the Jewish religion. In other words, starting in 586 BCE, there would always be Jews living in exile. And therefore, even when Jews had possession of Jerusalem, the emotional attachment to all the land was maintained as an essential feature of their national identity. And not to take us down a different rabbit hole, but if you want to understand modern Israeli politics, you would do well to understand this concept, born 2,500 years ago. There was also a larger point to all this creativity, change, and reimagining of the Israelite religion. Comfort. For all is not lost, not nearly. There is hope. God is still with us. Yet another writer around this time nurtured the Israelites' hope for salvation. 
Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and declare to her that her term of service is over, that her iniquity is expiated, for she has received at the hand of the Lord double for all her sins. This writer was the prophet Isaiah, who we talked about a whole bunch of episodes ago. Except this wasn't that Isaiah. The original Isaiah had prophesied in the time of King Hezekiah, some 130 years earlier. This was a writer still using his name. We call him Second Isaiah. He wrote on the theme of the uniqueness of God, Israel, and the suffering of the exiles, and promised a return home soon. Repeatedly, Second Isaiah insists that God will comfort his people. He writes that they who trust in the Lord shall renew their strength. As eagles grow new plumes, they shall run and not grow weary. They shall march and not grow faint. Why was he so confident? Because, says Second Isaiah, I am the Lord and there is none else. Beside me there is no God, that there is none but me. I am the Lord and there is none else. Now, did you catch that transition there? Since introducing Yahweh, we've been focusing on the henotheistic aspects of Israelite identity. The idea that while Yahweh was the national god of the people of Israel, other gods existed for other people. But the exile has upended that philosophy. As Karen Armstrong writes, the Zion liturgy has always asserted that Yahweh was the only god who counted. With second Isaiah, that insight had developed into an unequivocal monotheism. So now is when we start to make that leap into the monotheism that forms the core of the Jewish religion. It's when we start making the transition from tribal Israelites to a more unified Jewish peoplehood. In exile, the Israelites concluded that God was one, king of the world, the only God in existence. And as much as God had previously both provided for and punished for the collective whole, the prophet Ezekiel insisted that now, too, were individuals responsible for their actions. Consider, says Ezekiel on behalf of God, consider all lives are mine. The life of the parent and the life of the child are both mine. The person who sins, only he shall die. In other words, while God had punished Israel for the sins of the nation, from now on, each person alone will be accountable for upholding the commandments, for keeping the covenant. Ezekiel developed a utopian vision for a coming redemption in which the Israelites would re-enter Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. This time, said the second Isaiah, they will be with their God, who was unequivocally and uniquely one. From the prophet Jeremiah, we get an account of Israel's history which sets us up against idolatry, in which divine punishment greets our sins, but favor comes from uplifting God. From Ezekiel, we get the notion that God is with us wherever we are in exile. From the priestly writer, we get the compendium of laws and rituals to enable us to access the divine presence and maintain the covenant even without possessing Jerusalem and the temple. And from second Isaiah, the notion that God is one. When you add them together, you get a paradigm break from the Israelite religion of the past and the embrace of a new theological and philosophical construction that will come to be known as Judaism. Scholars debate about just when the Jews began to identify as Jews. It may be that a couple more centuries will go by, when they are under the Greeks, that the Jews fully embrace all the aspects of this new religion. 
But for now, we can say that the exile marked this extraordinary historical transition when the Israelites transformed into what we can understand as Jews. As they responded to this unprecedented crisis of exile with remarkable creativity, they developed a yearning for salvation in which their suffering would bring redemption. And, incredibly, it happened much, much sooner than anyone thought. The Babylonian exile began, depending on how you look at it, in 597 or 586 BCE. By 538, Babylon was no more. A man whom 2nd Isaiah credited as the Messiah, the Anointed One, conquered the Babylonians and established his own rule. His name was Cyrus the Great, and he was king of Persia. A new empire had begun, and one of Cyrus's first orders of business was to free the Jews to return to Jerusalem. The great return promised by the prophets and writers was here, but as they would soon find, things are never that easy. The exiles returned to their ancestral homeland very different people and found conflict with those who hadn't spent the last decades in Babylon. It raised, not for the first time nor certainly the last, the perennial question of Jewish history, who is a Jew? So that story is next time. As always, my website is jewidontknow.com and my email is jewidontknowpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lahitraot. See you later.